0: The Apostle Paul inside the book of Ephesians is where we're at, chapter 4, verse 17 through 19, as uh, Jonathan read to us graciously today. Um, The first three chapters of the book of Ephesians is all about who you are in Jesus, that if you truly have been saved, then there are all of these heavenly decrees from God on who you are. That you're the adopted sons of the daughters of God, that you're chosen, that you're predestined, that you were once dead, you are made alive in the person and work of Jesus. We see God's sovereignty, His grace at work inside this salvific process that has only come to those who are in Christ Jesus. So, for three chapters, He tells us over and over and over and over and over again, this is who we are. In chapter four, there's a big fat therefore in verse one where He transitions from looking at all this doctrine, all of this uh, stuff about identity and, and who we are to remind us of that because that is the horse. The second part of the book is the cart, and we often have a tendency to put the cart before the horse, so we have to constantly be reminded of who we are before we get really practical, which is typically where we like to jump to. First, And so in chapter 4, Paul is going to transition, and he's going to talk about this idea of walking in a manner that is worthy to the calling that you have been called. That term walk there, actually in the original language, means your conduct of life. So what Paul is reminding his readers is he's saying, because this is who you are in Jesus, your actual walk, the manner of your life, should... Be congruent with who you say you are in, or better yet, who decrees that you are in them, and that being Jesus. That this idea of dormant Christianity, cultural Christianity, that's what we do a lot of here in the South and in America, this idea that you can uh, philosophically ascend and agree to this idea of salvation in Christianity, and yet your life live completely opposite to that, is not found inside of Scripture. So Paul goes into that, and he's talking to the, the corporate body. He's talking to believers. He reminds them, again, to be urging, uh, to have these attitudes from the inside that reflect the person and work of Jesus. And the first one that he talks about up in chapter 4 is this idea of unity and the importance that within the church that we aren't like a family, we are the Family. The most important family on the planet is your church family, all right? And so we, we see the beauty of the church and also the importance of striving for, pursuing for holiness, sanctification, to be like Jesus, Christ-likeness, however you want to call it, that this is our pursuit, that we should stop blaming the sovereignty of God on our immaturity because he has rightly, through the power of the Holy Spirit, give us every tool that we need to draw and to be intimate with Jesus. So your marriage, not about you and your husband, your wife, your kids, it's ultimately about Jesus. Your kids are not ultimately about raising these little demons to not be demons anymore, to grow up into mature adults. No, it's ultimately to do that in hopes. Of being with Jesus. Your job is not punishment. It's not a paycheck. It's there to provide an opportunity for you to engage, draw near to, be intimate with Jesus. So the ultimate goal of our lives, the purpose-driven life is to be with Jesus, to be intimate with Jesus, have a relationship with Jesus, to know him, to know his word, to know his So you go there from this idea of unity into maturity, that we all need to be mature in Christ, to be growing up in him, that he is in this unity does not mean uniformity, but that Jesus has also provided for us some different gifts and abilities. We've equated that to a box of Legos, right? They're all different shapes, sizes, colors. That's what the church should look like, and it would not function well if every Lego was just the two-prong or the single-prong Lego, right? You follow me? Parents of kids, if you've ever stepped on one of those, that's when you cuss, all right? Please forgive us. All right, so we should all be different and we come together to be built up in Christ as the head. And we are the church. So maturity. we got unity. If we're going to be unified, then we've got to be mature. We said one Sunday that if Mission Church, if we're really going to grow deep, what do we got to do? Got to grow up. All right? It's time to grow up. Some of you have been immature, carnal, baby-like Christians for far too long. It is time to mature. It is time to grow uh, so Paul will continue this kind of idea of maturity in which he's going to declare today and next week what does immaturity look like. And to, for you guys who are real pragmatic, real practical, you want nuts and bolts and handles for the rest of our summer. If you look down through this, this chapter of Ephesians, you're going to see things like in about three weeks on the 24th, I'm going to be talking about what it means to, to be angry. All right. From there, we're going to be talking about what does it mean to have labor, to not steal. Um, for some of you, you're going to love this Sunday. We're going to be talking about our use of language. Um, but that is all directly from the text. You can read it. These little like sermonettes that Paul is going to just spout out. We're going to spend an, a, an hour, two hours each Sunday, three maybe, going over, don't be angry, get a job. Don't cuss, all right? So it's going to be awesome. Come back, all right? So from there, we see this unity, maturity, right? Practicality. So what we could have seen was this idea of how do we go from unity, maturity, to the purity of the church. We're going to spend a lot of time dealing with that. From church unity to church purity. Think about this. Paul is going to dive in today talking about the idea of worldliness and godliness. So I'm going to toss the ball up here to pose an overarching 35,000-foot view question for you this morning. Is do you consider yourself worldly and do you consider yourself ungodly? All right? Do you consider yourself worldly? Do you consider yourself ungodly? Ungodly. All right, verse seventeen, Paul says this. Now this I say and testify in the Lord. All right, one of the heartbeats of what I try to teach pastors and what I've learned myself is when it comes to preaching, is that we should preach the tone of the text. That there are some tones. If we're talking about lamenting, there should be a somberness in the preaching. All right. Um, If we're talking about He is risen. you've already forgotten resurrection happened he's risen indeed right um is is that in that there should also there's celebration text all right chapter four is a, a lot of imagine paul grabbing you by the shirt collar and he is urging you to do something all right. This is a seriousness. As a parent, this is where you get down on your knee. You look your kid in the eye. You grab them gently. You use a calm voice. But you're like, "Hey, you, you have got to get this." All right. He does that in in chapter four, verse one. He's going to do that again right here. Now I say and testify in the Lord. Now Paul, when he says testify, he's not talking about like the church that I grew up in. A, a, As a kid, we're at the end where the preacher, have open mic night and say, anybody got a testimony, right? And Sister Margaret would stand up and tell us about the corn on her feet and how it got healed off this week and the, the three warts, I mean, the whole, I mean, you'd hear about all different kinds of stuff as we had testimony service, all right? It's not what Paul's doing here. In the actual language, the word is insist. So, Paul is saying, now this I say and insist. All right, now you get the picture. I insist that you get this. All right you got to get this. I urge you. I beg with you. I plead. And to add significance, Paul says, this is from the Lord. This is not I, Paul. This is a directive from Jesus. I insist to you, mission church, you must get this. Guest visitor, you must get this. All of your life is going to hinge on what is being said today. You must get this. This is from the Lord. He goes on. It says that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Paul is saying, I insist with death, death-risking urgency. Don't walk like the Gentiles. All right? Paul, as we know in his story, he is willing to, to risk all of life. He is willing to have and to have not. He's willing to go to the gallows, to be burned to the death, to be drugged behind a chariot, to be stoned for this urgency. That's why I preach as a dying man to dying men. As I I stand up here and preach the word of God, I truly believe it is a life and death that you are about to jump off a spiritual cliff. And if I did, hey, don't do, don't do that. No, that's not what was happening here. Get this. I I I insist, I urge you to get this truth. Now, what's interesting here is that Paul uses the word, don't be like the who? The Gentiles. Well, who's he preaching to? Gentiles. But in this usage of this form, is that he's not talking about a race of people, all right? Just in case you're new to this whole Bible thing. um, There's the Jews and then everyone else on the planet. If you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. All right? So welcome, Gentiles. This is our weekly gathering. Hello, my name is Eric. I'm a Gentile, okay? In that picture, though, specifically, Paul is saying this. He's using the term Gentile not as a race, because what has he already told this church of Gentiles? You're a new human. There's Jew, Gentile, now there is Christian, all right? All right? So when he's using the, the term Gentile in this form, he's saying worldly, ungodly. Ultimately, Paul is using the term Gentile to say non-Christian, all right? So he's he urging them, no longer walk. He uses that again from verse four, chapter, or chapter 4, verse 1. He's going to come back to it right here. That you must no longer walk, live, as the non-Christians do, all right? and the futility of their minds, all right? See, if you are in Christ this morning, and this can be really interesting in conversations, if you are truly been saved this morning, it's not that Jesus has come into, he's been knocking on the door of your heart, now lives inside of this thing, beating inside of your chest, all right? But Jesus consumes everything about you, including the way that you think, See, in Christ, our worldview has completely changed. The Gentiles, the non-Christians, they walked in futility. If you do a word study there, what does that word mean? It means to be vain. It means empty. It means the emptiness of thinking. And and Paul says, don't think like non-Christians. Don't think on meaningless things. Don't let your thinking be empty. Don't let it be vain or self-driven like the non-Christians. But everything within your thought process may be held captive by the very gospel of Jesus Christ. So this means the the way that you view marriage, the way that you view kids, the way that you view uh, voting and elections and citizenship and job and uh, all of these sorts of things should all be affected no matter what the world does and says, no matter what they say is legal or illegal, our thinking is completely driven on the word of Christ and Jesus himself. This is the way that we should be seeing everything. You once saw things through rose-colored glasses. Now we see all of the world through the gospel. Now, if you're paying attention to any of these passages that have been read here this morning, look down at your Bible. Notice this of what he's going to talk about. He's going to mention the mind several times in several different ways. In chapter, in verse 17 there, he's going to mention the word mind, right? In verse 18, understanding. Um, And he goes on to use a word that my mom never liked me to say is that you're ignorant, right? Ignorance um, is there. Um, We get this over and over and over again, the centrality of Christian thinking. That if you're going to have a new life in Jesus, this is not just merely about you walking on streets of gold and I see Mark and Abraham, but I want to see Jesus. Have you ever heard that song? Sorry. Um, And it's not simply about those things, It, it is about being consumed in the person and work of Jesus, including your thinking. Your thinking. Now, with inside uh, kind of enlightened culture, we like to say that the greatest distance um, is the distance between your head and your heart. From a biblical understanding, though, the heart and the mind were interlocked and connected. The heart was the seat of the emotions, but also of the intellect, all right? So for our understanding, I, wanna, I, I get that we say heart is like kind of our emotions. Well, how do you feel? And the mind is, is somewhere off. From a biblical perspective and context, those things are interlocked. Okay? So just know that I may still use the American heart and mind, but I want you to get what we're trying to say here. We're not saying that your intellect is void of how you feel, but most importantly, that how you feel is driven by truth. And the truth is the gospel, not all the lies that we love to tell ourselves. So a lot of the gospel and what Paul is saying here is that we need to get that if we're going to be unified, if we're going to be mature, if we're going to be pure, then we need to have the thinking because the immaturity of the non-Christians is, is literally in their thinking. All right, We want to be driven by gospel-centered thinking and gospel-centered common See, the Holy Spirit, if he has truly come inside of you, changes your affections, he changes your thinking, and your lifestyle will conform to the person and work of Jesus. Therefore, if Jesus is truly inside of your life, brothers and sisters, friends, you are going to live differently. To not live differently, you know what you call that? Immature. It's called Gentile. All right? Remember, this all begins, all this practical stuff that we're going to go to over the next few months, it all begins with what is happening inside of your heart. You ever been around somebody who has great service and a terrible attitude? I mean, they, are, they do a bang-up job, but they just have a terrible attitude about it. If you're a Seinfeld fan, fan, the soup Nazi, great soup, terrible attitude, right? Um, and, and we can often be around this, whether it's in our home or, or in our churches or, or people that we are around. That, and, and the thing is, according to the gospel, that this is a problem. That our, our, our great service, which should not be begrudging, but it should be all coming forth from something deep within inside of us. See, God is not after behavior modification this morning. Please understand this. God is not just... After you making sure that you have a list of do's and don'ts that you can do and you can't do, God is after your affections. He is after your thoughts. He is after your motivations. I often think about this. Yesterday I had the opportunity to spend the day. Uh, We welcomed the program Living Guys to our house from Hope House. It's a local ministry that we're involved in here um, at Mission and, and many of us personally. And so these seven guys, many of them um, coming from an incarceration, from selling drugs, doing drugs, or other, their ways of imprisonment or just alcoholism, all different sorts of things, all right? And many aspects from the outside looking in, their lives are completely foreign to the way that I grew up and my struggles and so on and so forth. But when you really begin to dive in, and we often have these conversations working with these men, is this, these men go to program living, they live there for 12 months, Okay? They go to Bible study, like, I think five or six days out of the week. Anybody else in here do that? That's what I thought. All right? Um, they have one on one discipleship every week. All right? Every time the doors are open of the church that they have to attend, they're there. All right? Now what's interesting is that all of these guys are doing all of this Bible stuff. They are doing Christian stuff. And while they're living inside their house, guess what there's not? There's not drugs, there's not alcohol, all of these sorts of things. And from their families peering in on these guys, they seem to be doing everything just right. They can be moral with inside of this greenhouse. But one of the things, those of us who work with these men, that we've quickly began to understand is that all of these men can be good moral. They can change their behavior for 12 months, but you know what's still screwed up? They're thinking. See, here's the thing, brothers and sisters. You do not need Jesus to change your behavior. All right? You do not need Jesus to change your behavior. There are great moral people. I mean, these brothers, they're in the Bible more than you. And they are non-Christians, many of them. They're, they're in, at the church. They serve all different sorts of things that we would love for church members to do. These men are doing it and they're non-Christians and guess what? They're getting cleaned up on the outside but their thinking is, is still depraved. They still think like non-Christians even though they're not selling meth anymore. All right? Why? Because their hearts are still in the grave. Their minds are still in the grave. They will still die without Jesus and be given over to the eternal wrath that they deserve called hell, unless God changes them from the inside out. But parents, husbands, wives, friends, we can be really drawn toward behavior modification and miss Jesus. And miss Jesus. We've we've got to get this. See, their activity has changed, their hearts, their minds have not. Jesus, brothers and sisters, is after something much deeper. Moralism, please get this, moralism is not the gospel. Our motivation to obey should not be for fear of punishment. See, some of you are here this morning because you're fearful of punishment. Some of you don't do certain things in your life that are considered to be Christian, not out of your affections being drawn for Jesus, but but primarily because of out of fear. Do you know that you might as well be a Buddhist? You might as well be a, a Muslim, a Hindu, because that's all that religion, all those other religions, that's what they are. Be good enough, and you might get favor. It's all fear-based. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. No, no. we, all of this stuff that we're to be doing is not like a millstone that has been placed upon our chest, but those of us who have truly understand that we are in Jesus and what he has done, we truly understand Ephesians 1 through 3. Guess what? It is our joy to obey. Bring it on. Tell me some more to do. Show me even more how to live, not out of fear, but out of, out of a truly, we love it. Read the Old Testament. Sometimes we get this idea of everybody walking around like the law. Oh, I hate the law. Read the Bible. What they say about the law? It is sweet. It is better than life. I mean, all of this sort of stuff about the law, these people inside the Old Testament. I mean, we we get this picture of, no, we obey it because we love it. And some of you are like, oh, just Pastor Eric, Pastor Justin, Pastor Todd, tell me one more thing to do. No, Jesus is saying, man, look at what I've done. There's no greater response than for us to... Want to love God, to love people, and to love his word. Something getting up every morning and having a quiet time shouldn't be this begrudging, hated, oh my gosh, time to, you know, make the donuts. It's, no, it's we desire it. We love it. All right? I mean, some of you are like, when, when I have brothers come to me or my wife comes to me and says, hey, this, this, this was a little... Off kilter. This was a little unChrist-like. Okay, getting to where you love it. See, you can't see your own blind spots. I can't see my own blind spots. That's why we need the church to help show us, to help steer it. But whenever God is saying, "Man, I, I want this," I, I meditate on the law day and night. It is that means it's inside of our mind. So when we're struggling, when we're wrestling, man, we can call to, from memory. These very texts to help us in this fight. See, some of you are religious, and you're just being moral out of fear. But man, if you've really encountered Jesus, then the pursuit of your heart, the pursuit of your mind, should be toward him. Flip over to the left inside of your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Let me show you something just really quickly. Paul is going to talk about this there as well. I wish I had time to read this entire chapter, but I'm trying to go from like two hours to an hour and 55 minutes in my sermon, so I had to cut something out. All right, so um, in this, when we look at Paul's life, he's talking about non-Christians here. All right, he's he's talking about unbelievers. He's talking about the very people that Paul is saying, do not be like these people. And listen, verse eighteen, chapter one. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness what suppress the. Truth for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown to them for the invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, that he's been clearly perceived ever since creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. All right? So it keeps going, and then it's telling about how bad these people are in verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their flesh, to the impurity, to the dishonoring of their body among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for the lie and worshiped him. Then, verse 26, he says he gives them over to their dishonorable passions. And we see all this sensuality, all of this immorality. We see homosexuality. all, All of these sorts of things is this process that we're seeing over and over and over and over again. And Paul is reminding the church in Rome, he's reminding the church in Ephesus, don't be like these people. Brothers and sisters, you don't wake up a mass murderer. It's a process of inches to wake up. These people that Paul is talking about, they didn't wake up into these immoral relationships. It was a process that led them to this, it gave them over to the thinking of their mind, the lostness of their mind. Let me break this down for good old boys. All right? What is Paul saying? Don't live like non Christians. There you go. Let's go home. Not yet. All right. Don't Live like non-Christians. Don't think like non-Christians. In Mark chapter 7, verse 20 through 22, and he said what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For within him, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, and they defile a person. See, your actions, brothers and sisters, will always follow your true beliefs. Write it down. You may verbally say with your mind, with your mouth, this is what I believe. But what you really believe will be shown. It will come out. And I think it's J.D. Greer who says this. Many people, what you're trying to do is you're trying to put plastic apples On something that's not an apple tree. Stop living like non-Christians. Alright? Parents, you ever have to say, hey, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. Stop, right? Yeah, wake up, Matt uh, Ben. Alright, so that was for you. Alright, so here's my nephew. I can pick on him, right? Alright, so I mean that's that's what Paul's doing here. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing here. Stop it! right? Just, just stop it. Stop living like non-Christians. All right, verse 18, he goes in. How else do non-Christians act? They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of their ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. What do we see about non-Christians? So Paul says, don't be like the Gentiles who have crazy thinking, meaningless thinking. They're dwelling on things that don't amount to anything. He says you keep going with that, that their very minds are Darken. Now we know that as Christians, we're to be people of the light, that we walk in the light where there's light. There can be no darkness. So within the church, the people should not be having this darkened mind. If you keep playing that out, it talks about like mental blindness is what he's saying here. The illustration that we often see is that if you've ever been around drunk people, I've had my privilege a few times. It's, it's being controlled by drugs or alcohol, that kind of picture, where you're kind of out of your mind, all right? So the world right now, if they're non-Christians, they're out of their minds. John MacArthur would say this. He would say, he said, it's time for Christians to stop imitating the dead, all right? I know that zombies are really popular, but if you walked in today any day at your work and, you know, a teacher here at school and she walks in dragging that foot and it's not Halloween, what would you think? Freak, right? I mean, you'd be like, this is an idiot. Who is this? And, and the thing is, is that we're so blind that we don't even understand that we're calling ourselves Christians and yet we're walking around imitating the dead. How are you imitating the dead? we got to keep Christianity weird. We are too much like the world. This is serious. How does he say that this this impurity of thinking leads to darkness of mind, right? But it also, what's it say? It says alienated non-Christians Brothers and sisters, we have compassion this morning. Non-Christians, your family members, your friends, the, the all of these sorts of things that do not know Jesus, they are alienated, they are presently alienated from God. They are separated from God. And so Paul is saying, don't act like you're separated from God. That's how non-Christians act. Let me step into the church house for a minute. Paul is going to say here in This text, due to the hardness of their hearts. See, step into the church house, speaking to you, brothers and sisters. See, we often will think that hardness means hostility toward God. We we will believe that it is hostility, that's what hard people are. You know, Stephen Dawkins and, uh, is it Richard Dawkins, Stephen Hawkins, right? Something like that. Bill Maher, we'll think about these, like, militant atheists, right? And we'll say, man, that's that's a hardened heart, all right? Which it is. But we need to understand that's, that's hostility. That's a hardened heart that it, it, it produces a, a wall of hostility toward believers. But resting within churches every week, there are hardened hearts, and it does not manifest itself as hostility. It manifests itself as a people who will hear the word and not be changed by it. That as well as a hardened heart, all right? You have to be careful every time that you shoot a weapon that, that you don't ricochet those bullets as best as possible. Because what does it ricochet? A bullet will ricochet off something that is really hard. The word hardened here in the Greek means like stone, like impenetrable, all right? It's Superman's skin here, all right? This is, it means it means harder than marble, the most hardest thing possible and we Cultural Christians, real Christians like to look at these militant atheists and say, man, these people, they have hardened hearts. They're hostile toward us. But I want you to know, hearing the Word of God preach to you and 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 it making no change is evidence that your heart is just as hard as the militant atheist. Hear the word, not changed, indifferent. You know, talk about your grocery list during the sermon. Talk about what we're going to do. You're just here, check the box. This is the best way to live. This is the best way to have a marriage. This is the best way to raise our kids. You know, I'm not really into this whole thing, but I know that this is the best thing to do for each other, for people, for our lives. So let's just carry on. Let's sleep on Sunday mornings. Let's, let's just hang out. Let's, let's make some friends at church. And I want you to know all of that is reflective of someone who doesn't understand the gospel and someone who is hardened toward it, though they have every outward kind of appearance from what we can tell that they're followers of Jesus. What is the results of a darkened mind? Verse 19. They have become callous, and they have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy, to the practice every kind of impurity. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So it's the result of this futility of thinking. What is the result of this alienation? What is this old result of darkness? And again, Paul is saying, don't be like this. I'm just wanting, by contrast, I want to show you what not to be like. And what is the result of that? Is is callous. All right. Well, what are calluses? Calluses are um, from where something typically on our skin, where there is applied pressure over and over and over and over and over again. If anybody in here has ever tried to learn how to play the guitar, the reason why most people quit or any stringed instrument, uh, where you're having to press on these frets, what begins to happen when you first begin to play is, is that you literally get these indentions Inside of your fingertips and they hurt in some cases. They'll first they become raw then they blister Right you keep doing it. Sometimes they bleed your skin will crack. I mean real musicians. I am not I I'm a YouTube star. All right Um, What happens is is that most people will give up before that ever happens All right, it hurts too bad. But is that applied pressure over and over and over and over again. And my wife says all the time, do not poke me with your fingers. You have the strongest fingers of anyone that I know. All right? I I could probably do one finger push-up. One with Jonathan spotting me. All right? Push-up. I just have really strong fingers, especially on my left hand. And it's primarily from jabbing those strings for the last 20 years. All right? I don't even feel it anymore. Like You could probably give me a shot. You could cut me on my fingertips. I would not feel it because of calluses. Carpenters, their hands. All right. Runners, a lot of people with their, their feet can become just calloused over from the repetition of these sorts of things. So Paul uses the terminology uh, of, of being calloused. At first the pressure hurt, it causes blisters, then it forms calluses. What what does this mean from a biblical standpoint? This means that these people's hearts, these non-Christians' hearts, that they become apathetic. That they cease to feel pain or grief. That they're insensitive to pain. If we could have a really honest conversation here this morning... we can easily fall into these traps. We fall into these traps because there are things that used to bother us. And, and that grief that was called, that sorrow, that pain, um, was at like first glance at it. All right? I remember the first time I went to to Haiti and in my first trip to Haiti was right after, it was actually before the earthquake, and in so, um, I stepped onto this, they actually call it a fourth world country. There's something worse than being a third world country, it's a fourth world country, it's called Haiti. And I remember getting off that plane and immediately the smells, the aromas, the things that I saw. I've talked to the Vanderpools about uh, a very common thing within India where they lived was the smell, right? So it becomes very pugnant. Like you step out, you're seeing people in poverty, you're seeing naked going through the trash. That's how they're getting their meals. You see mass people and cattle uh, watering holes. That's where they're washing. That's where they're getting meals. And at first... Guess what? You're like, brother be stinking, all right? Sister be stinking. Oh my gosh, look, they're naked. Or I can't believe that they're drinking that dirty, disgusting water, right? It takes you back. Anybody been in a similar situation? All right, it's like, I cannot believe this. But you know what you'll quickly do after spending much time there? You won't notice it smells anymore you're probably contributing to the smell. When I lived in Minsk, Belarus for a summer, um, I took showers when we first got there. By the end of the month, my then girlfriend was pretty much having to tell me, like, you need to take a shower. I was like, I'm in Belarus. I'm gonna act like the Belarusians. I mean, I pretty much wore the same shirt every day. I was lucky to get on deodorant. I'm American, but I transitioned in a few months to living like a Belarusian. And, and again, not caring any more about it. Well, this is what they're doing. They wear the same shirts every day. They don't wear deodorant. They smell. I'm just adding to the fragrance. Right? In the same way this is how you will do with sin. This is how I will do with sin. We will become insensitive. We become apathetic. We will, the awe the, oh, of, oh my gosh, about this. And, and that can be created and generated from what we see on the, the internet, what is pumped through Netflix, through television, through all of these sorts of things. It is pumped into us where we become desensitized to this very thing. So what our hearts and minds Um, we, we can actively participate in big and little sins, as we love to call them. We begin to justify them. No one's really getting hurt by this. Or the classic, nobody is perfect. If no one knows, then is it really that bad? We see them as, as innocent sins, but what is happening is our hearts and our minds are becoming more and more hard. They're becoming more and more dark, and, and, and what used to hurt us no longer hurts us. We are practically numb to immodesty or violence or foul language or humor or desire for power to the way in which we spend money. We are fixated on, uh, fixated on our titles and our salaries and our jobs and our building of things and the car that we drive, and the clothes that we wear, and the houses that we have, and all the things that that we want. He'll tell us. He'll give us three examples here. This is not an exhaustive list, but he'll say, what do they do because of this hardness? They've given themselves up to sensuality, to greed, and the practice of every kind of impurity. I'm going to try to stay really PG today. We've got kids in here. Um, There needs to be a further discussion on sensuality, all right, Um, that's very serious for us, that we uh, have live in, create, participate in, even within the church, the acceptance of many sensual things that we should not. That we should not. Pastor Todd is going to preach a sermon at the end of July, He's going to dive deeper into that. We may even provide an opportunity for some older kids to disappear that way. Parents, that will be left up to you. But we need to have a very frank conversation in our church about that sin particularly. All right? The second thing that we see here from this callousness is this idea of greed. What is greed? Well, the greed picture is is that we have a strong desire to have more and more physical possessions. We consume more and more and more and more, willing to do whatever it takes. We're, we're never content. We've got to have, I need a, a better husband. I need a better wife. I need a better kid. If I wasn't if I was single anymore, if I just had someone, if I had a better job, more money, this car, that car, if I just had these sorts of things. And so this idea of just becoming jealous and, and coveting what other people have, I need more. There's lust. We often think of it just being about sensuality, but lust is a craving and working with guys of addiction that they'll just tell me that they just, man, they'll be completely consumed that they must have this that they're longing for it they taste for it so on and so forth that, that all of these things just completely consume what we have that we will practice immorality we will do all sorts of, of kind of just um, whether it's cheating on our taxes or trying to go around this way or that way or this way or that way whatever it takes because we need more stuff Can I tell you something really quick? If God has made you rich or if God has ever made you rich, you know what it's for? It's not so you can build a bigger house. If you're a believer, it's so that you can keep living like you used to and give all that excess away. That's why God makes some people rich. And if you're in America, guess what you are? You're rich. You're rich. I mean, what? What a! I mean, that'll that'll crack our jaws right open right there. Living in America. Is this this idea of 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 consume more, more, more? Gotta have, gotta have, gotta have, gotta have, gotta have, gotta have. That is the anti-gospel, brothers and sisters. You know what the gospel message is? The gospel is much of it's driven by this life and call to live more simply. to live more simply, The world wants us to sacrifice our time, talent, and treasure for meaningless pursuits when the gospel wants us to give it away to experience what's real freedom. All my missionary friends say one of the hardest things about coming back to America is is that we have too many choices. We see that as yes, but it's too many. Too many choices. This is the way that non-Christians live. This is what they want, and we're buying into this. So in conclusion, if our our only diversion, I want you to see this this morning, if our only diversion from looking like a non-Christian is that you're attending a worship gathering this week or a small group on Wednesday night, uh, I, I want you to know that you've missed it. I love this quote from Jerry Bridges. Ungodliness may be defined as living one's everyday life with little or no thought of God or of God's will or of God's glory or of one's dependence on God. You can readily see then that someone can lead a respectable life and still be ungodly in the sense that God is essentially irrelevant in his or her life. We rub shoulders with such people every day in the course of ordinary activities. They can be friendly, uh, courteous, and helpful to other people, but God is not at all in their thoughts. They may, may even attend a, a church for an hour or so each week, but, but then live the remainder of the week as if God doesn't exist. These are not wicked people, but they are ungodly. A person may be moral and upright or even busy in Christian service, yet have little or no desire to develop an intimate relationship with God. This is a mark of ungodliness. Brothers and sisters, stop living like non-Christians. The Bible insists that we stop living like non-Christians. But understand this. It is not about being good people. It's about being godly people. Because here's the thing. Many Christians, we still wrestle with sin. But the key phrase there is wrestle with it. Struggle in it. Go to fight over it. Weep over it cry over it confess over it and yet you will see many christians who are claiming to be followers of jesus who are claiming to be christians who now because the current of the of the world has gone in a certain way that they too are beginning to drift and to go that way in claiming to be followers of jesus and yet they are actively promoting sin and paul is saying This is not the gospel. This is not the truth. Brothers and sisters, the Ephesians were not super Christians. They did not have anything from God that is not really available to every one of us in this room. They were ordinary people who had jobs, families, had daily chores. They were, you know, taking their kids to cricket. I don't know. Surrounded by culture that was probably far worse than ours. Love to hear old people talk about it. Oh, it's just getting worse and worse and worse. It has not gotten as bad as the first 2,000 years on this planet yet. We ain't got there yet. All right? And it's typically circular, secular in motion, right? There were ordinary people who had jobs, families, chores, surrounded by a culture that was probably far worse than ours, except, however, the expectation, the pursuit was still there. Live like Jesus, don't set your minds on the things of this world. A few weeks ago, a few months ago, I had the opportunity to go into the Gather for the Gospel Conference. Several brothers were there with me. Um, several of you have probably listened to maybe some of these sermons, and I believe that there's an, there was an illustration given that I think just will conclude this. We'll pray, get on to communion. Um, Pastor Matt Chandler, pastor of the Village Church, he's also the pastor of the Acts 29 Network. He's a Southern Baptist pastor, which we are both part of both of those sorts of things, gave this great illustration. He says, guys, uh, do you ever watch When Animals Attack? Anybody ever seen that show? You got some joker out there, and he puts dough and heat all over his body and goes and tries to pet a buck, right? And that buck just rips him to shreds right the you know, person walk up to the buffalo start petting the buffalo oh there's a grizzly bear right and in this illustration he says i don't know about you guys but i always root for the animal cuz they're idiots and he said one night he said i don't watch very much tv but when i was watching tv one night and when animals attack i was in a hotel room somewhere and um, I started watching when animals attack, and there was this beautiful model, and they, they laid her on, on top of this lion, and they took like the mane of the lion and like, covered over this woman. It was like a shampoo commercial, right? So this model gets up on this lion, they lay the mane over her, herbal, herbal essence or something, and um, all of a sudden, this lion rips this model to shreds. And they videotape this. After this, they go up to the trainer. And he goes, I could have never imagined this happening. It's a lion. It's, It's a predator. Eat, sleep, eat. Eat, eat, eat. Sleep, 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 sleep. Eat. It's a, it's an, it's like at the top of the food chain. It's like when people get into the ocean, they get bit by a shark, and they're like, I can't believe I got bit. You broke into its home. It's where he lives. And they said that they were interviewing the guy, and he's like, Well, I just never, I never saw this happening. I can't believe this terrible accident. I never could see this, this company. This, this happening, he said, um, I was just dumbfounded. See, I've, I've raised this lion since he was a cub, and I used to walk it and pet it and, and, and feed it, and I would comb its hair and play with him, and I've trained it since it was a little bitty boy, a little bitty cub. I cannot believe that this has happened. Chandler makes this great connection between the trainer of the, the cub and how many of us treat sin. With this dangerous thing out here called sin, but it's been with us, and and we can control it. We've trained it. We can tell it to sit down when it needs to sit down. We can bring it out and show everybody when we need to, to bring it out and show it. It's become comfortable for us. We can tell it to get in the bed. We can tell it to get out. We can tell it to go here. We can tell it to go over there, and yet it is... Uh, dangerous. It is deathly. The, uh, you know, we, we don't sorrow over this sin anymore. We've justified it. It's, it's okay. It's not worse than what everybody else is doing over here. We don't have any sorrow, or, or, or better yet, maybe we do have sorrow over it. Some of you kids feel bad when you get caught You ever had sorrow for getting caught, but not sorrow over your sin? There's a huge difference there. Some of you will cry. I'll cry, I'll be confessed. I can't, man, I looked at this. I did this. I did that. I can't believe it, I feel bad about this. You'll confess it even. But there is not hardcore seeking out godly Repentance. See, worldly sorrow without the realization that you have committed spiritual treason against God is the same thing as playing with a lion and it, it kills stuff. It will kill you. Don't play with sin. Turn from it or it will devour you. Do not be deceived, Mission Church. For most of us in here, for many of us in here maybe, and even more people out in the world. It will not be from this list of horrific sins that you and I create that kills you. It will be death by a million cultural acceptable sins that come more like paper cuts than throat slashes. And yet it is all deadly. Mission, are you a godly people? Friend, are you a godly person? Do you know this Jesus? Are you consumed with what it means to be in Christ? Do you long for Him? Many of us grew up singing a song from the Psalms called, called As the Deer Pants for the water, and it—it it, it was this really sweet song. As the deer panteth for the water, so my soul longeth after. And everybody's just smiling. That's not a smiley song. Why do you pant for water? Go ask my African brothers and sisters who walk miles and miles and miles and miles in the heat of the day to get water. Why? Because they are dehydrated. As the deer pants, like he's man, he's 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 craving it. He's got to have it. And we live in a world that says, "Man, you got to have all of this other stuff. Sensuality, greed, big house, big cars, nice clothes, all of this sort of stuff. Fall into sin, be like us, have, have, have." And yet the scripture says, "Be like a deer who's who's literally starving. He's panting for what? God. That is the most important thing. And when that is the most important thing, all else will be added unto us. See, the thing is, we are worldly. And we are ungodly. And there are only one who wasn't. And his name is Jesus. And guess what? Take heart. He says, I have overcome the world. And be godly, because I'm godly. And and without me, you're going to be like these non-Christians, but with me, The table is set. Come and eat. Mission Church. Don't act like non-Christians. Pretty much if it's becoming popular in the world. Run! Run from it. Probably do us Christians good in a lot of cell phone companies if every one of us would go back to a flip phone. Or one of them kind. Hey, Margaret! Margaret! Get me Brandon. Right? Turn off, turn off the one-eyed devil. Right? Go back to pen and paper. You want to, to send a pigeon to text me. Right? I mean, think about how much we could step away from sin if we would come more simple. There's a lot of volume in that. All right. Let's pray. together.